Would you take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. For the next few months, I'll be preaching from the book of Philippians. And for the next few months, Jared is going to be preaching from the book of, of, of uh, Jonah. I have already begun our series by considering verse number 1 and 2. This morning, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. 1164 in the uh, Pew Bible that's under your chair. Before I read the uh, portion of Scripture and then go into the sermon, I think it's important that we put this letter in context so we can better understand who Paul was writing to and what was going on in Paul's time at the time of this writing. Paul, writing this letter to the city of Philippi and to the church that's within Philippi, this letter that we call Philippians, Paul is writing this letter from Rome. He's a prisoner uh, under the Praetorian Guard, Caesar's Um, elite type of guards. He's a prisoner. The king of the age over the entire empire, the Roman Empire, we call him Caesar. His name was Nero. Paul was writing this letter in 62 AD, according to most scholars. Two years later, after writing this letter, Nero began to horribly persecute Christians, especially within Rome. But this persecution began to spread throughout the empire, which covered most of the civilized world. The persecution included burning of Christians, using them as, at times, candles in his uh, horse racing, his hippodrome, uh, Christians were covered with wax and then lit on fire to illuminate the Hippodrome. It was in 64 AD, two years after Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. One year after Nero began this tremendous persecution of this small, tiny little group of Christians in Rome, Paul was then beheaded. He was beheaded in 65 AD. So here you go. Put that in context. Put yourself there. Put yourself in the, in the place of the Philippians. 62 AD, two years later, persecution, massive, is going to set in upon Christians. Paul himself is beheaded three years after this letter is written. It's written to the city of Philippi, which itself was a Roman colony, hundreds of miles away from Rome, but it was a Roman colony. It is where military leaders in particular would go to retire, who were extremely patriotic, if we want to use that term for their time, patriotic for Rome. The church of Philippi was tremendously small. Very few Jews were part of it. This was mostly the people that were Greeks and Romans that made up this church. 
And this little church in Philippi, imagine yourself, a beacon light now in our times. But this little church in Philippi was surrounded by a pagan culture, a powerful government, and a powerful ruler over them, Caesar, Nero, whose influence was felt all the way here in in Philippi powerfully. Remember now also as we go into this letter, Paul himself, when he preached the gospel there many years ago, was severely beaten here. Uh, He was not treated very well in Philippi, and he found himself in prison there as well. But he loves this little church, Philippi. And he has joy every time he thinks of them. Deep affection in his heart for them. He loves them. He prays for them all the time, and he wants them to grow in their faith. So he prays for them regularly, and now he writes to them. He also sets them an example. And even in this letter, you see that he calls for the church of Philippi to imitate him, to follow his example. So that's a long introduction, but it's necessary because we're going to be in this book of Philippi for a while. And I want you to take in today that this letter wasn't written just for the people of Philippi. This letter was written to you. Because God is the one who moved the heart and the mind by the power of the Spirit for Paul to write what he wrote. These words continue on forward with power. They're written to churches today as well. Let's learn from from the Apostle Paul, but especially as the Holy Spirit instructs us. Let's go to now the letter. Starting in verse number 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we just sang the song, We Want to See Jesus. We pray that we will see Jesus in this message as your Spirit gives us instruction. Lord, and in seeing Jesus, we want to become more like him. And in the end, with all of this, we pray that we will be enabled to bring greater glory to your name. Magnify your name in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Amen. Our key verse today is verse number 6. And uh, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That will be our key verse. The title of this message is, What God Has Started, He Will Finish. So what is this good work that God has begun in us? I would like to 
put it out there very, very plainly, boldly, succinctly. What I feel as your pastor is this good work. It's to make you like Jesus, to make you like his son. Verse number seven says that you are now, according to Paul, partakers with him of grace. You are partakers of grace. Ultimately, the central facet of that grace that we are uh, receiving from God and we share with Paul, the gift of grace ultimately is the person of Jesus Christ himself. We have received Christ. Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. You are alive in Christ. You have union with Christ And this letter that we're looking at here today, Philippians, is remarkable. Nowhere else in all of Scripture do you see repetitively the phrase, in Christ Jesus. I can do all things in Him, in Christ, who strengthens me. You know phrases like, uh, and... um, And the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. You're going to hear that phrase over and over again in Paul because Paul is keenly aware and teaching them that they are in Christ. This is the work that God has begun in us. And we never forget that it is God who has begun this work in us. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of God that you're in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, you've begun that way, but you're becoming more and more like him. The Apostle Paul, once again, so we continue to hear this Pauline theme, as he was writing to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 3.18, he put it this way, He said, in beholding Jesus Christ, seeing him, we are being conformed to his image from one degree of glory to another. Brothers and sisters, you've been predestined for this, to be found in Christ and to be conformed to his image. You were predestined for this. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, he wrote this, he said, those whom God foreknew... He knew you way before the existence of anything. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those he predestined, he also called. We've been called by God. And those he called, he justified. He cleansed us from sin, not guilty anymore, justified. It's a It's a jury type of verdict. We've been justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What do we mean by glorifying him or being glorified? The attributes, everything about us is going to work out in such a way that it brings glory to God. When this work is done, we'll be bringing ultimate glory to God. When will that time happen when it's done? When will this work that he's begun be completed? At the day of Christ Jesus. At the day of Christ Jesus. Why? Because when he comes back, we shall see him as he is. We shall see his face. We shall see him as he is. And then we shall be like him. That's what the Apostle John says. 
Would you just flip over a page and would you look at Philippians chapter 3, verses uh, just 20. 3, 20, maybe 21. Can we read this together? As we learn together here today as well. It's not just a sermon. We're learning. This is a teaching time too. Verse number 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We shall see him one day face to face. A little learning time for us here this morning. Would you look at verse number 5 and number 6? I said our key verse is number 6. Did you see in verse number 6 where it says uh, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ? Do you see how your translation says at the day of Jesus Christ? The Greek word there is akri, akri. Akri almost everywhere in the New Testament means until. Not usually uh, is the word at the adequate translation into the English for that word akri. Look above at verse number 5, and I'll give you just a little example of what I'm talking about. Do you see in verse number 5 it says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, do you see where it says until now? starting with the first day, until now. That word until is akri. It's the same word that was used here in verse number six. And that's why many of your English translations use the word that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what does that have to do with us? What benefit do we have in even knowing that range of words? What I want to maintain before you is that in Christ, as we're alive in Christ, that this great work that God has done in us, that he's begun in us, is actually going to find its completion in that way. It is a work that he has begun, and he's going to continue to do it until the day of Christ Jesus. We call that sanctification, You are already holy in the Lord. You're a saint because of Jesus. You're alive in him, but you are growing in holiness. You're growing in Christ-likeness all the way up until the day of Christ Jesus. But at the day of Christ Jesus, we can then say with this verse right here, it will be brought to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So God is at work. He has begun this awesome work in you. He did it. And he is, as you're depending on him, continuing to do it. And as you continue to rely on him, he will finish it. Do you find comfort in that? I do. I do. I hope you do as well. From beginning to end, God is doing a marvelous work in us, making us like his son. And he will finish it. Three major aspects of this Christ-likeness that I want to point out to you this morning. Some attributes that go along with being like Christ. Three major ones. There are others, of course, but I'm just going to give you three. Here are the three aspects, characteristics of Christ-likeness. Love, holiness, and the fruit of righteousness. Let's look at number one, love. Love has the preeminent place. It's in verse number nine. Do you see? Look at verse number nine. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. 
Love carries the preeminent place. God is love. There's nothing greater, it says in Scripture, than love. We're talking about imitating God today, becoming like Jesus. Ephesians, when Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, here's what he said about love and about God and about imitating him. He said, be imitators, therefore, of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. See, in Christ, we're also enabled to imitate God, be restored to his image, but God in this great work is making us like his son. And in this love, we learn to love God, even as his son did. Jesus loved his father, and he did everything his father wanted him to do. And we love our neighbor, and we love one another. I'm not going to spend much time on that because I've preached so many messages recently about the love of God. Number two, holiness. We talk about the image of God being restored to the image of God and becoming like Jesus. Holiness is paramount. It's not preeminent, I say, to the level of love, but I don't know how you can actually talk a whole lot about one being greater than the other, and and, and I just have to be careful with that because God is is holy. And he's called us image bearers to be holy. Sons and daughters of the living God should look like the Father. Children of God should look like their Father. The image of God, he's holy. And he says, be holy, for I am holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Verse number 10, look at that. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. You think about your life this morning, and I'll do the same. As we come before the Lord, in some ways naked, standing before the Lord, how do we look? Pure, blameless. I can address you individually, every single person in here. Stand individually before the Lord. You think about your life individually. Pure and blameless, holy before the Lord. But remember also that this letter is addressed to the people of Philippi, the church in Philippi. So there's a plurality. There's a communal aspect to it. How about us as a church, beacon light? Pure? Blameless? Remember what the church is. She's the bride of Jesus Christ. The bride of Christ. Jesus Christ is the groom. We are the bride. And God is in the process through our faith in Christ and by this washing of the word, by having our minds transformed by the word, we're, we're, we're being made more radiant as a church. Beautiful, spotless, blameless. Why? Because there's coming a day. What day? The day of the Lord. The day of Jesus Christ. When the bride, the church, is going to come together with the groom and there will be that beautiful wedding. The wedding of the Lord. The wedding of the Lamb. What does love and holiness look like, though, when we wrestle with that? How can we know? Paul says here, when we talk about holiness and we talk about love, everybody's got their thoughts about what that might look like in today's culture. 
You need discernment. You need knowledge. Would you join me here in looking again at verse number 9? And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment. Where will you get such knowledge and discernment? The ability to really understand what is holy and what is not. What is loving of God and not. And not be fooled by the way the world says what holiness is or acceptable or loving. How do you know? Well, one way is the Holy Spirit will lead you, and that's why Paul prays for them. But the other is the Word of God. That's why he's writing a letter to them in the first place. What do you do? What do I do with this Word that's been given to us? So instrumental in having us conform to the image of Jesus Christ, do you prayerfully read this Word? Do you cherish it? I guarantee you that church cherished that little letter that they got from Paul. They probably memorized it. All four chapters. Do you meditate on this word? Do you memorize it? Are you immersed in it? Is your mind immersed in it? And if it is, and you're being obedient, you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then when we practice it, we become more and more like Jesus. This is the word of God. This is scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man and the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you went to a martial arts school and you just had your first day and you're a white belt, you're getting started in taekwondo classes, you, you're going to stand in that line and you're going to be weebling and wobbling all over the place. Your balance is probably going to be horrible. Your eyes are going to be wandering all over the place. You're going to be tense when you shouldn't be tense and, and sloppy and relaxed when you shouldn't be. Your breath is going to be out of control. You're going to be out of a breath and you're wondering how the people way up the line up there, all these seniors seem to be just so relaxed and they're exercising like you and they're not out of breath. It's because you're a white belt. You're just beginning. But what happens is your teacher, the teaching taekwondo master, is going to show you how your technique should look. And he will demonstrate it. And then he will explain it to you. And so you'll see him and you'll hear his explanation. And then you will train four days a week in that setting and you'll exercise on the side and you'll learn to eat properly and train on the side but four days a week and what will happen as you relentlessly practice with dedication as you look to your teacher and he teaches you in time you develop a foundation in your stance your balance becomes excellent over time. You develop precision in your techniques and speed and power and strength and endurance. You become graceful in your techniques. Even when you're doing powerful techniques, they become graceful. They become beautiful. You have control. You have accuracy. And you're striving for perfection. And over time, as the years unfold, you become more and more like your teacher. And if he's an excellent teacher, you are going to be excellent in the martial arts. 
as you become more like your Taekwondo master or teacher. Another thing happens that's very interesting as you mature and become like the one teaching you is as you progress in the line and now you find yourself in a senior role, you'll look back down the line at all those who are beginning and here's what's going to happen is because you've been trained well, you're able to discern the flaws in those who are coming up and who are just beginning their journey. Furthermore, if a black belt comes into your school, uh, transfers over from another school, if that black belt has been well-trained with balance and breath control and focus with the eyes, and there's been discipline, you'll see it. You'll say, that one was trained well. But there are times when you're in martial arts long enough, you'll see black belts who will come to your school and oftentimes they will be very flashy. Lots of flashy techniques, but instantly you're able to see the weakness in their stances, in their foundation, in their balance, in their focus. It's all flash. And you can tell they don't have the core. Similarly, as you read this holy word of God and you obey it and you stay committed to it and you cherish it, more and more you're going to look like the one in whom it's all about, Jesus Christ. You're going to be conformed to his image. We sang the song, I want to see Jesus, to become more like him. And as you become more like him, you bring glory to his Father in heaven. More and more. Furthermore, When you're in this holy word, you will have knowledge and discernment. You will be able to look around at the world. And when the world is bombarding you with its value system, and you're being tested in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, what's going to give you the ability to look at the world's value system and say, that's wrong. To have discernment is because you've been here. And you've been obeying it. And you can tell what's fake and wrong out there in the world. Furthermore, when you even hear preachers and pastors preaching from the pulpit, if you've been in this holy word, and you have been well taught, well discipled, your eyes have been on Jesus Christ the whole time, you've been dependent, and the Holy Spirit is at work in you, you'll be able to even hear pastors preach, and you can say, when they're amiss, that doesn't sound right. Something's wrong there. Or flat out, you'll just say, no, that's wrong. And if you have questions about what a pastor is preaching, and you're not really in agreement with it, but you're not really sure why you're not able to quite yet accept it, you'll go back here. You'll test it in the Word of God. So I close this message here. I want to spend a little bit of the time on the fruits of righteousness. Number three. Love, holiness, number three, fruits of righteousness, a good work. God has begun a good work in you, restoring the image of God, image of Christ. God is love, God is holy, but God is also righteous. He is just, and he's concerned for his justice, for the world to reflect his justice. All of them are there. If you read the Bible carefully and prayerfully, you can't escape it. Love, holiness, and the fruit of righteousness. That's what Paul was talking about right there, right? Verse number 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. So after love and holiness, filled with the fruit of righteousness. You can't escape it. Love, holiness, righteousness. And don't try to separate them. 
Some folks are in the Christian realm are all about justice, about righteousness, about justice. And sometimes they can, quite often actually, they can miss the cross of Jesus Christ. They can miss the personal aspect of holiness, the need to be holy, even as you get involved with justice issues. They miss personal salvation and the necessity as we go and work for justice to make sure that we're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, evangelism. There are others, though, that that's what they're all about, is salvation, getting people saved. They're about evangelism and getting people into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and with God. And eventually, going to be in heaven. And quite often, uh, this group, if they're not careful, can miss justice. In fact, for many uh, within the Christian realm, the word justice already sets off bells and whistles. If I was to say the word social justice, you might even say, "Uh uh-oh, the pastor's doing what he just said to be careful about. Justice for so many is a bad word. It's not even the gospel. Some say, Here we are, we're reading the same scripture. Even this morning when we said our prayer, we said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are many who see that and they say it's all about holiness. And his kingdom coming, for the most part, is waiting for Jesus to come back. Others read that same passage in Scripture and they see holiness, but they're wanting to work it out in the world, and they feel that already they should be at work for the kingdom now and seeing His will being done on earth now. There's an illusion, an optical illusion that's out there that reflects this as a a sermon illustration. It's called The Old Woman and the Young Woman. You've seen that. You look at a picture, and then the question says, what do you see? A young woman or an old woman? And you look, and say, I see the young woman. Another person looks at the very same picture. Every outline, everything is the same picture. No, I see an old woman. But if you look long enough, you begin to see, oh, yeah, there she is. I didn't see that young woman at first. There she is. Yep. I got a young woman. There's an old woman. They come together. My point with all of that is don't try to separate what is meant to be there together. The old woman and the young the old woman and the young woman are both there. Justice and holiness and love are all there. The apostle James Well, actually, it was uh, James, the brother of of Jesus Christ, wrote this. He said, religion that is pure and faultless is this. You want to be religious? You want it to be pure and faultless? Here's what it looks like. Look after widows and orphans in their distress and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Do you see how holiness and justice come together? Don't try to separate the two. The Pharisees were great at holiness and being fastidious about their religious observances. And Jesus said, Woe to you, Pharisees! You even tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin. But I tell you, you neglect the weightier matters of justice, of mercy, 
and the love of God. You should be practicing these without neglecting the other. And then there's the final judgment. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? That's good. But Jesus says this also about the final judgment. That final day, the day of the Lord, the judgment day, all the nations are going to be brought before the Lord. You know that passage. I will just finish it all up as he divides the sheep from the goats. In the latter portion of that passage at the end of the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus Christ relates this. He said, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was a wanderer on the streets, you didn't take me in. When I was sick and I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And then Jesus says, whatever you didn't do for them, you didn't do for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment. Not annihilation, eternal punishment. But then he says this, but the righteous. He's not talking about holiness right there. He's talking about loving your neighbor. Justice. But the righteous to eternal life. Isaiah 58, which was our confession passage this morning. Three times you saw the phrase, the righteous. We're entering into the Lenten season. We talk about fasting, and then God says, here's what I call a fast. It's to look after the oppressed, who are the oppressed today. And to feed the hungry, take in the homeless, fix the ancient ruins that are around you, fix those streets, and observe the Sabbath. Honor it. Keep it holy. Honor me with your worship. You see, brothers and sisters, God's people are kingdom people. I'm speaking today kingdom language. This is the language of the kingdom. It's a kingdom of love and holiness and righteousness. People do right. So he began a good work in us. It's a work that's going on in you to make you more loving, like God, more holy. But it's also a work that's making you more fit, more fit for service in the kingdom of God. And glory and righteousness go together. Isaiah 58, 8, in the midst of all that said this, if you do all these things, then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Do you see what it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 11, in our passage this morning? Filled with the fruit of righteousness, there it is, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Beacon Light, we're not giants here. We're not the Apostle Paul. We're not William Wilberforce fighting for the abolition of slavery. We're not William and Catherine Booth working for the poor. We're simple people here in Beacon Light. We're simple people doing simple deeds of love and mercy and charity and trying to do what's right and ministering to the poor. But we also have to engage with the issues of today. I know abortion is a topic now for many that folks say that, that, that pigeonholes you. You're, you're, you're a right-wing 
conservative, whatever, whatever. We can't be silent about those who can't speak for themselves. Likewise, race, it's real. The Jim Crow stuff that went on in the South was real. The lynching, 5,000 lynchings in the South over like a 30-year period. The racial issues of today. We can't be silent about that stuff. We have to speak. And if you do, they're going to pigeonhole you in the Christian community as a left-wing liberal. But you're kingdom people. Sometimes you're going to be called right-wing this. You're kingdom people. And as you act as kingdom people, sometimes you're going to be characterized as left-wing that. So be it. Speak up. Martin Luther King, he said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Two and a half years ago, our church, together with some other churches in the community, we put on a festival in, in Black Oak here in Black Oak at Seaburger Park, and we held a basketball three-on-three tournament there. The teams were made up of black, some were all black, some were all white, and some were mixed, Hispanic, predominantly the three, black, white, Hispanic held a tournament in Seaburger Park. Lots of food and hip-hop music, Christian hip-hop music. Opened in prayer and a word from somebody from this church who talked about why are we even doing this. And that was on a Saturday. And that went on for five hours. Black, white, Hispanic, in the name of Jesus, enjoying basketball. The very next day, we held a worship service there under the pavilion. Our church joined with a few other churches and the mayor of Gary, Indiana. Karen Freeman Wilson and her husband also joined us and we worshiped together, black, white, and Hispanic. And this was right. It was just. It was good. It was the gospel, a portion of it. And it brought glory to God. Finally, we can't be silent about what we're doing today. Increasingly, the church is going to be oppressed. Persecution will come. Most of the world sees it already. We're going to see it. What we're doing today, we're gathering to worship God, to give Him honor and glory Praise his holy name. We're doing this together. Spurring one another onto love and good deeds and encouraging each other. That's my sermon. I left out one massive component, and that was the gospel itself. Next week, we'll look at only the gospel. Because everything that I have told you this morning is irrelevant if we have not encountered Jesus Christ through the gospel. And we have a responsibility to tell others the good news. Next week, it's all about the gospel. But so far, we have begun well. We, God has, actually. He's begun a good work of love, 
of holiness and of righteousness, of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and what God has started, he will finish. And all God's people said, Amen.